Uh, well, welcome everyone to New Community Church this morning as we celebrate the risen Lord. Um, it's interesting as we approach this, as approaching this Easter season is a better way to put it, um, you start seeing all those flyers in the mail from different places, you know, Target, Kmart, same thing in the States. It's interesting, they're advertising all their Easter sales and, um, you know, just trying to uh, entice you to go buy, spend money and buy stuff. Um, it was interesting, I came across one the other day that just kind of struck my eye, and you may have seen it, and I won't tell you what place it, it was from, but it had a, had a young girl, and she was sitting on the grass, and in front of her was uh, a little bunny chocolate bunny and she had a basket full of eggs and she was smiling and uh, it was interesting but what struck me was not that what was in the in, in the foreground but what was in the background and background was a sign and a sign had these uh, just a post excuse me with these different signs pointing in different directions and you know one of the signs said bunnies one of the signs said egg hunt another sign said fun and one of the signs on the bottom said picnic and they were all going kind of in different directions and I thought about that, and I said, you know, that, that's, that's what the world thinks about Easter weekend, right? It's bunnies, and it's fun, and it's family, and it's picnic, and it's chocolate. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But that's not what Easter weekend is all about. And I, I thought about it for a second, and I said, you know, if I designed that sign, you know, maybe I'd leave some of that on there. But at somewhere in a prominent position, I would put an arrow pointing towards church, or better yet, Jesus, the truth. And so we live in a world where, especially in the Western world, it's kind of a postmodern, post-Christian world where people don't have an understanding of what Easter is really about. It's like Peter and I were talking the other day. Uh, he had an experience at a grocery store, uh, one of the shops, and I did. This, I kind of had a similar experience where the lady who was checking me out said, "Ah, oh, what are you doing this Easter weekend?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to church. You want to come?" And she goes, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to the beach with my friends. But it was interesting, once I said, I'm going to the church, she got really quiet. You know, it was like, she'd never even thought of it. Why, why would you go to church and worship? Well, I'm a, I'm a pastor, you know, we, we get together and we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And that gets her, they give it more quiet then, you know, they don't have a response. But they, they don't understand that just people in general, they, they go to parties, they go to beach, they do egg hunts, they eat chocolate. Um, but what they don't know is that this Sunday, its purpose is the remembrance and the celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a passage we're going to look at today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. And in this passage, it's an awesome passage in that it focuses in on Jesus Christ both as Christ and Lord. And we're going to be looking at Acts 2 verses 22 through 36 and if you guys want to turn with me in your Bibles, we'll read that in just a moment. But to give you a little bit of background, uh, this is the beginning of the book of Acts. It was written by Luke, and it's, a, uh, it's actually the second volume, if you would say. A great way to read Acts is to read Luke first. Luke wrote Luke, and then Acts, volume 1 and 2. It's really kind of the same book. Uh, part, it's like the, you know, was it uh, New Hope, and then the Empire Strikes Back? You know, it's part one and two, and then there's three. You have to kind of kind of get it together. But this is part one and two. So we're going to be looking at this passage, and in Acts, at this beginning part of Acts, the disciples have seen Jesus ascend to heaven. At the end of end of uh, Luke, he ascends into heaven. 
When they go back to Jerusalem, Jesus had told them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they're there in Jerusalem, and they go up to the upper room, and it's on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is 50 days from the Passover. It was one of the three big feasts for the Jewish nation, in which Jews, Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem, and they were required to offer sacrifices themselves and present themselves before the temple. So the city and its surrounding area would have been packed. There would have been, there would have been a tremendous amount of people there, and people from all over, not just Israel proper, but the known world. And that's how you, if you look in Acts chapter 2, that's how the, the disciples, the apostles were speaking. It says in verse 9, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia, and it keeps going. There would have been Jewish men and their families there from all over the world to celebrate this feast. Well, in the upper room we find out at the beginning of Acts the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the apostles. In chapter 2, it says that they were all gathered together, verse 1, in one place, and suddenly there came a heaven, a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house, and they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire, distributing to themselves to each one, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with one another in tongues, as the Spirit was giving utterance. And so there was a visual manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence, both visual and audio, audio, excuse me. And so the Spirit came and indwelt, and there was lights, and there were sounds, and there was miraculous activity in which these men were able to speak in previously unknown languages to all the different, what, the Jews from all over the world. And the people there in verse 7, they were amazed and astonished and said, aren't these Galileans? How, how, verse 8, how do we each hear them in our own language? So you had miraculous events tied to the appearance of the Holy Spirit. And so in, in this confusion, because if you look in chapter 2 of verse 6, it says when the sound occurred, they, they all gathered together and the crowd was bewildered. And in verse 7, they were amazed, they were astonished. And then in verse 12, they continued in amazement and great perplexity. And then finally they said, well, maybe they're just drunk. So there was, there was confusion and amazement and what's going on? Well, Peter steps forward and he answers them. And that's what we're going to look, for, look at this morning. He answers them, first of all, in 14 through 21, by giving them, uh, or explains to them that the, the Spirit being poured out upon them is like what was prophesied in the, with the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2. And he talks about how the Spirit would do mighty works. And he quotes Joel, and he basically tells him, this is the beginning of the last days. Brethren, do you realize we're in the last days? The last days started when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, and they will end when Jesus Christ returns with his saints to rule and reign. So we're in the last days, the messianic age. And that's Peter's point here. This is the beginning of the messianic age. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon his people. Now, in the Old Testament, and the reason this is such a surprise and such a bewilderment to the Jews, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only poured out upon individuals for a specific purpose or calling. Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit for a limited amount of time. When he disobeyed, the Holy Spirit was removed from him. David was empowered by the Holy Spirit to, in his kingship. Elijah, the prophets, they, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the entire nation 
who is individuals individually, right? Where here we have the Holy Spirit's being poured upon multiple individuals at the same time. And in fact, as we know, as we learn from the rest of Scripture, as it unfolds, all of us as believers are indwelled and filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? It's unlike the Old Testament. This is the messianic age, the last days that we live in. So Peter's, Peter's explained that first of all. Okay? So let's go ahead and look at our text this morning. That's, that's the background. I'll give you a little bit of information. But let's look at our text, and I'll give you, I'll give you three points in just a second. So we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and we'll dig in a little bit more. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Lord, we just praise you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for your sacrifice for us. Father, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to hear and obey and that we respond with worship. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so there's three things, three three points I want you to look at today with me. There's first of all, you got Peter's explanation of God's work in Jesus, and that's that's going to be uh, Acts chapter two, verses twenty-two through twenty-four. There's Peter's authentication of God's work in Jesus, and that's verses twenty-five through thirty-five, and then Peter's declaration of God's work in Jesus in verse thirty-six of Acts. So you have three points here. The first point that Peter makes is he says that. Jesus, he explains the purpose of God's work in Jesus. You look down in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God has performed through him in your midst, just as you self know. So Jesus, first of all, or excuse me, Peter, first of all, explains what God has done by talking about Jesus' perfect life. 
He said that, men of Israel, listen, Jesus the Nazarene, he's a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. While he was alive, he did miracles, wonders, and signs. Now we can think, and you can think of many miracles of Jesus. Right? First, turning water into wine. Right? He walked on water, he calmed the storm. The greatest was he brought Lazarus. From the dead, he performed many miracles. These miracles produced wonder. Right? That's the response. People saw those miracles and they were amazed. Right? They, they, you can't exp- how do you explain walking on water or calming a storm or feeding 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves? They were amazed. Or hearing of Lazarus being brought back from the dead. Right? Coming forth from the grave. Right? That was the event that preceded Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so people were amazed and they're, they're hearing about this resurrection. They, they produce wonder. But Jesus didn't do, come just to do miracles. These miracles produce wonder, but they're for signs. They validated His words. They validated His ministry. Right? Jesus did these things for a reason. It's not, not just walking around... I'm healing people. He did it to validate his own words. He did it to validate his ministry. For example, when, when the paralytic, they lowered the paralytic through the roof. You guys remember that story? That they lowered the paralytic through the roof. He wanted to be healed. Jesus' first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees started grumbling. So you know, he tells him, so you know, this is all Mark 2, by the way, verse 10, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your pallet and go home. And immediately he picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. And they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's just one example. So Jesus' life was characteristic of miracles, producing wonder, but there were signs testifying to the fact that he was the Son of God. And it's interesting, Peter says here that these signs and wonders were attested by God. Jesus' life and ministry were proclaimed good by God. Luke chapter 3, verses 22 says... But when, when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, the miracles of Jesus were attested or confirmed by God that Jesus was who he said he was. So, Jesus, so Peter opens up talking about Jesus' perfect life. Right? He's beginning, this is his gospel message, and he begins by talking about the perfect life of Jesus. And not only does he say God attested to these things, but he performed them in their midst. They knew about it. Now John chapter 3 is a very, very famous passage. Most of you know the story of, of Nicodemus and how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. What's interesting about Nicodemus is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says... At the beginning, right when he comes to him, he says, um, Rabbi, this is verse 2, we know that you have come from God, and you're a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So even the Pharisees recognized 
Jesus' work and his miracles were from God. Now, the Pharisees blasphemed Jesus' miracles and attributed his wonders and his signs, or attributed the signs and wonders and miracles to Satan. They said, oh, he's doing it by the power of Satan, not the power of God. But God confirmed Jesus who he was. It's like I was talking to Brenda and Peter the other day, and they were recommending a good Italian restaurant. And now if I go to that Italian restaurant and it's dodgy, right? You know, it's, it's going to look, who's going to look bad on? It's going to look bad on Peter, because I'm going to go to Peter and go, Peter, you know, you told me to go to this restaurant, and you know, there was filth and rats and mice, and the, the food wasn't cooked, and, and he's going to be like, oh, you know, maybe they got a new ownership or something, you know? But if you recommend something, you're, you're putting yourself out on a limb, right? Your reputation's at stake. Well, that's what a testing is. God, you test to something, you confirm something. Well, God confirmed Jesus' ministry. And he confirms it ultimately by raising him from the dead, as we'll see in just a minute. You see, Jesus made the claim that he is the Son of God. In fact, standing before the Pharisees, Jesus shocked them when they said, tell us who you are. And he said, tell us plainly. And he said, well, I I am the Father of one, or I am the Christ. And they were shocked. They picked up stones to stone him. And he said, are you trying to stone me for doing good works? No, because you're claiming what? Claiming equality with the Father. Jesus wasn't a good man, right? He, he wasn't just a prophet, as, as Muslims say. He claimed to be equal to the Father. And God the Father affirmed and attested to that fact through his ministry in his life and ultimately his death and resurrection. That's the fundamental difference between Christianity and all other major religions. Is not that we serve a man, but we serve the incarnate Jesus Christ. You serve Jesus Christ as Lord, the three persons of the Trinity. He is God and must receive worship as such. You'll never have a Jew or a Muslim worship Jesus Christ as God. Okay? So not only does Peter talk about Jesus' perfect life, he talks about his crucifixion. Look in verse 23. He said, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death or executed him. You see, one of the things about the crucifixion is that God was not surprised. This wasn't God's backup plan. Like Jesus is walking along, whoops, the Jews don't accept me. I'm going to die. What can we do now? Oh, well, let's have a resurrection and we'll, we'll create, a, create a new religion. It wasn't a backup plan. It happened according to the predetermined plan of God. It was God's plan all along that Jesus Christ would die and would suffer and be rose again, or raised from the dead, excuse me. In fact, Peter actually says this again in Acts 3.18. He says in Acts 3.18, But these things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer has thus been fulfilled. Then you go over to Luke 9, verses 22. Luke 9, 22, it says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised upon the third day. This is Jesus speaking about the plan, the predetermined plan. And then in verse 44 of the same chapter Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. And then verse 45, but they did not understand this statement. You see, this wasn't wasn't an accident. The crucifixion wasn't 
wasn't just something random that happened. It was all part of the predetermined plan of God. Luke 18, 31 and 34, it says, he says, Jesus took the twelve aside, and behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all these things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they had scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Guys, this, this was God's plan. But it doesn't, it doesn't absolve man's culpability. Look down, he says, even though it was a predetermined plan of God in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and even happened by God's foreknowledge, he said, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death or you executed him. You see, the Jewish leaders, and they, the people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ, right? There may have been some people in that crowd were, were the ones that were chanting, free Barabbas or crucify him. You see, they were culpable for Jesus' death. And it's interesting, he didn't say that, oh, you know, the Romans put him to death. He said, you delivered him over to them for execution. Right? It was the Jewish people who rejected their Messiah, their covenant, Davidic covenant king. He said, you, re- you nailed him to a cross. And now they used the Romans, but ultimately the Jews rejected Jesus. And they used the means. It's like if I hired a hitman, not that I would, but if I hired a hitman to kill somebody, right? Even though I didn't pull the trigger, does that make me any less culpable? Right? And that's, that's the idea. That's what Peter's saying. You're culpable. It's, it, you did this. You crucified the Lord. In fact, it actually kind of, kind of softens it in the English. You put him to death. No, no. It says you executed him. So you have Jesus' life, Jesus' crucifixion. And if you know the story of Joseph and his brothers, it's very interesting. In Genesis, over and over, Joseph says, look, you, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Right? He says, I was, I was sent to Egypt ahead so that basically the nation of Israel in its, in its uh, early form, Abraham, right? And uh, sorry, Jacob and his, and, his, um, and his sons would survive and the nation of Israel would come from them. In his early form, he was I sent to Egypt for that, purposes, for that purpose. It was God's plan all along that I come and basically be second in command of all, all of Egypt. That's Genesis 45. You see, it's all arranged as part of God's plan, but it doesn't absolve the Jewish culpability. So you have the perfect life of Jesus, and you have his death by crucifixion, and then you have his resurrection. It says, but God raised him up in verse 24, putting an end to the agony of death, for it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So God raised him up. Notice the contrast. They killed him, but God raised. Right? God performed the miracles through his life, validating his ministry. It was God's predetermined plan that he would go to the cross. They, they executed him, but God raised him up. Notice the work of God in this salvation. Right? This is, this is the work of God in bringing about salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. It's actually, in the Greek, it's interesting. I mean, Peter were talking about this the other day. It's actually the, the pangs of death. And, and it refers to the birth pangs. 
And now, ladies, those of you that had kids, um, Peter's, Peter's double metaphor here, but he, his, his analogy is that the agony of death is like the pains of childbirth. Right? Uh, I'm not a lady. I don't identify as a lady, and I don't play a lady on TV. And I don't have any personal experience. For those of you ladies that have given birth, praise God. You know, praise God that, that you were able to endure it. But Peter says it's like, it's like the agony of death. I tried to. I was joking around. My wife, when I first born, was about Arden was about to be uh, born, and I had the iPad, and I was like, "Honey, I'm gonna videotape this for posterity," you know. And, and it's it's funny when she, you know, before you get into labor, but then these those labor pangs start, and I start making those same jokes, and she looks at me, and you know, she gets that that deep, you know, horror voice, like, "Don't you do that," you know. <laughs> the eyes start flashing, you're like, "Okay, honey," you know, because it's painful. From what she tells me, anyway, not by personal experience. Um, but praise, praise God for you ladies that have given birth and experienced the pangs of childbirth. Well, God put an end to the agony of death, and then death was it is impossible for death to hold him. You know what? If, if the other day I was at a I was at a place and I saw this little lizard on the ground and I picked him up and I was showing the kids just just a little little lizard. Now I have power over that lizard. He can't. He couldn't do anything I didn't want him to do, right? And then, I, obviously, I, I let him go and didn't, didn't harm him. But that's kind of the idea here is, is death can't hold something that's more powerful than itself, right? He, he's humanizing death. There's no person of death that's, you know, drawing with a big black cope and a grim reaper. There's no person of death. He's just drawing a picture of death and saying, look, death doesn't have the power to hold Jesus because death's not as powerful as God, Right? So Peter's point here, and he's preaching now. He's preaching to these Jews, and he's saying, look, it's, it's God's work, right? He's explaining to them God's work in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection ultimately is the fundamental point. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just a man. Maybe a good man, quote-unquote. Right? As, the, as Nicodemus even said, you're a good man. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Hint, hint, hint. So the resurrection is the fundamental point. So not only does he, he offers an explanation of God's work, but he also offers an authentication. And it's interesting the way that Jesus authenticates God's work, especially the work of the resurrection. He does it by giving three testimonies. He does the testimony of David in the Old Testament, the testimony of the apostles as eyewitnesses, and ultimately the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this long section, verses 25 through 35, is all doing. It's authenticating the work of God. In verses 25 through 28, he quotes Psalm 16. Now this is one of those passages where when David wrote it, he meant it for himself. And he talks about how he has confidence in God. I saw the Lord always in my presence. My right hand is not be shaken. And he exalted in God in verse 26. And, and God's not going to abandon him forever away from his presence in verse 28. But he has gladness in the fact that he will be in God's presence. David meant it for himself. Peter takes this and he makes it, or, or reveals it is the best way to put it, that it's also a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 29, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He basically takes the point of verse 27 and says, Look, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And he says, David's dead. He is decayed. In fact, he says, Look, his tomb is with us to this day. You know what's interesting about this time? 
I've never really thought about this fact until I started researching this passage, is that they could go to David's tomb in Jerusalem at that time. In fact, there's this, there's this story I was reading where King Herod tried to raid David's tomb, still treasure, gold, whatever he wanted, I guess, because um, you know, he, he didn't really care about history. And the, the Jewish story along that line is there was a fire started somehow, they don't tell how, but everybody attribute it to a miraculous, miraculous invention by God where there was a fire started and prevented King Herod from getting into the tomb. Well, King Herod was such in, in fear and awe that he created a marble entranceway that blocked the tomb and it was a testimony to David and his life. So they knew where David's tomb was and they could go there and they could see it. It was, it was a beautiful place. Marble entranceway elaborately done. So Peter's point is, look, David died. He's dead. He's in the tomb. He's buried. He's decaying. He said, and I can confidently say that because we can all go look at the tomb. It's right over here. Imagine him pointing. Right? And then he keeps going. He says, look, verse 30, and so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead, verse 31, and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So he draws back that point again. He says, I can confidently say that David's dead, and that David's a prophet, and that this particular passage spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. Right? Because if your soul's not abandoned and your body's not decaying, then you're, you're speaking about an immediate resurrection. You see, the Jews actually believe that the soul, and this is, this is Jewish thought, there's no proof one way or the other, by the way, Jew, they believe that the soul stayed in the body for three days, and then it, then it went where it was going to go for all eternity. Okay? Well, David had been in the ground more than three days. Right? And so that's, that's Peter's point, is that this passage is a reference, and David acting as a prophet is a reference to the Messiah and the resurrection. Right? And we have other passages in Scripture. If you read Psalm 23, Psalm 22 speaks over and over the words of Jesus on the cross. See, it has a, a meaning for David in the time that it was written, but it also is revealed to have prophetic meaning as well, because it's quoted by Jesus. So, here we have the testimony of David, first of all, pointing towards the resurrection. Right? It's, it's a proof text for the resurrection, if you want to think of it that way. Right? David, Peter is supporting, his, supporting what he's just said about Christ when he explained who Christ is, and he does it using an Old Testament passage that could only point to the resurrection because, like I said, David underwent decay. Right? And so Peter says in verse 31 that he has to be speaking of the resurrection of the Christ. And then he keeps going, and he says, you have the testimony of the apostles. So you have the testimony of the Old Testament in David. You have the testimony of the apostles in verse 32. He says, we, he said, this Jesus God raised up again, and we are all witnesses. Right? Now, if I told you guys about the states, and I told you about how beautiful the Yosemite Park was or Sequoia National Park or told you about one of the most one of the beautiful places I love where I grew up uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park beautiful mountains there's a Blue Ridge Parkway you could basically take this highway and it winds through the mountains and just gorgeous best time of year is to go and the leaves change and there's just beautiful vibrant colors of all these deciduous forests it's just gorgeous gorgeous now I could tell you about that right and you would believe me. 
Because one, you know I'm an eyewitness, right? It'd be different if I was trying to tell you about Australia. Oh, the beautiful places in Australia. You know, you have this place here, and you got Perth and Darwin, and Sydney's great. You kind of laugh at me. Who does he know? He's never been there, right? But I, I'm an eyewitness. Well, Peter draws this in. He says, look, not only do we have the testimony of David, we have our testimony as eyewitnesses. We were witnesses to Jesus' life. We saw it. John was an eyewitness of Jesus' death. He was there, right? And then they saw the resurrected Lord and they saw His ascension, right? If you're, if you're, if you're, you're bringing this together in a court and you're offering support, that's pretty good. You got, you got Old Testament prophecy, and you have eyewitness testimony, right? Jesus actually says in Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verses 40, 44 through 48. Give me one second to turn there. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 48. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be Fulfilled, And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise again on the dead from the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to his name, excuse me, proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. They're witnesses. By the way, we're not witnesses. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We, we testify to what the witnesses said, right? We have the witness of the apostles written down for us in the Word of God. And we testify to what the apostolic witness was, right? And when we go out into the world, we testify by what we've heard and what we've read. We weren't eyewitnesses of the resurrection and of Jesus' life like these apostles and disciples were. So you have the testimony of David, you have the testimony of the apostles, and then you have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Look down in verse 33 with me. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has both poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then He goes on, He says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but He Himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, Basically, Peter's point here is, look, you see the Spirit. You, you've seen, this, seen the lights. You've heard the sounds. You've seen the work of the Spirit in speaking about Jesus Christ in all these known languages. You're, you're hearing about the testimony of the Spirit directly, what you've seen and what you've heard, that the fact that you see and hear the Holy Spirit is evidence that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father because He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So don't you follow Peter's argument here, okay? He's received the promise of the Holy Spirit and, and it shows that Jesus was exalted. Luke 24. Jesus says, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Right? The promise is the Holy Spirit. Okay? Luke 11, the Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father. Right? So they see the effects of the Holy Spirit and 
Peter uses this as a third testimony, a third authentication of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And then he quotes David one more time in Psalm 110. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And now this is a key verse because it says, verse 34, it wasn't David who ascended into heaven. And you think about this. This is David saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay? Real quickly, the Jews would not use the name of Yahweh. Right? They would call, whenever Yahweh was written in Scripture, whenever they wanted to address or talk about God, they would use the term Lord. Right? This is pretty cool. I want you to listen for me. So whenever they would use the term about God, referring to God, they would say Lord. So here Peter quotes David and says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay? Or to say it another way, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David's not talking about himself. right? He's trying to show that the Messiah is also the Lord, that the Messiah is also equal to God. Right? That's why Peter says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Right? So David pulls this passage, and he or excuse me, Peter pulls this passage, David's words, and he says, look, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, we know that's true because we have been given the promise of the Holy Spirit. A plus B equals C, right? We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus has to be exalted at the right hand of the Father because Jesus says, I'm going to send the promise of the Father to you. Right? So Jesus has ascended. He's exalted. He's in the exalted position. It's a, it's, it's a place of prominence, a place of equality with God. He's ascended. Jesus, if Jesus is at the Father's right hand, then Jesus is Lord, and Lord is God. That's Peter's argument. Okay? So Jesus is both Christ and Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then Jesus is God. That's what Peter's saying here. Alright? So you have, you have God's, you have Peter's explanation of God's work in the life of the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then he authenticates that work, offers support for it by the testimony of David in the Old Testament. He offers support for it by the testimony of the apostles and the eyewitness account, and he offers testimony of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that they had the Holy Spirit proves that Jesus Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And then you have Peter's final point right here, one verse, Peter's declaration. He says, Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? After all that, Peter brings it all the way back and he points his finger right at them and he says, you need to know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. I've just told you why and explained to you God's work. It's the Jesus that you crucified. See, God preordained Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, his ex- now His exaltation. He's Lord. God alone has that title. It's the name above every name. The name in which every 
knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Revelation 19, He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. Acts 2.21, and this is bringing it back to His earlier statement. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, Jesus was Lord and is Lord and Christ. He sacrificed Himself. He is the Messiah. He's Lord over all. And it's only through His name that people are saved. Have you ever been certain about something so certain that no one can talk you out of it? That no one can can persuade you? Right? I remember I was so certain, so certain that American Football Gridiron, my team in the Super Bowl, was going to win. I was so certain. Oh, they're going to win. You know, the best defense. They got this great running game. They've got all these, all these great players, right? I was so certain. And then we lost, and I wasn't so certain, right? Peter says, look, we can be certain. We can be certain that Jesus is Lord in Christ. So how do we respond then, okay? We, Peter's made that declaration. How do we respond? Well, if this is your first time hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you're not sure if He's actually your Lord and Savior, then the answer is found here in Acts verses 37 through 39. Look down here with me. We're winding this up. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? And Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. So he says, Repent. And then he says, What? Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're baptized in Jesus' name, you're making a public pronouncement that you are willing to follow Jesus Christ. And then for the Jews, that would mean being excommunicated. Losing your family, your friends, your business. It's costly. So Peter says, look, repent of your sins and submit and be baptized in the name, identifying yourself with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And what's interesting, for those of us that are Gentiles and not Jews, he actually adds this in. He says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to Himself. So it's a promise is for them and their children, but also for who do you think is far off? The Gentiles. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 says, Therefore remember that formerly you were called the Gentiles in the flesh. And that's us, by the way. We're pig-eating Gentiles. Right? You were called uncircumcision. Verse 12, remember that you were at times separate from Christ, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's hope, not only for Jews, but for us Gentiles. What about for those that are here that you are a believer, right? What, what's the answer? What, what, what do we need to do? How do we need to respond? Well, the simple, simple fact is we respond in worship, right? We respond, and worship, by the way, is, is responding to God's nature. We respond in reverence and awe and humility at who He is. We respond to His works. 
and thankfulness and praise and joy and awe and appreciation. And we respond to His commands. And we obey Him, obey Him because we love Him. Jesus said, if you obey me, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Brethren, in light of what you've heard this morning, in Peter's explanation of God's work, Peter's authentication of God's work in Christ, and ultimately Peter's declaration of God's work in Christ. Let's worship Jesus as Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are Lord and Christ. That You will co-equal with the Father and that You are the promised Messiah. And it's through You the blessings of the new covenant are mediated to us. Lord, that we have salvation through You. It is through Your name and Your name alone that all men can be saved. Father, I pray for those here that don't know You that You would convict their hearts of the sin in their lives and their standing before You their lack of goodness and righteousness for You and the, the destiny that awaits them eternally separated from You because of their lack of faith and lack of submission to You, Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, I pray that You would work in their hearts, draw them to Yourself. For those of us that know You, I pray that this will be a time of remembrance, of worship, of communion with You. Lord, we thank You and praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, saints. You're, you're dismissed.